This morning we're going to continue our series, Hymns About Him. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at a very concise yet powerful one-verse hymn in the New Testament. Now for those that were not here last week or uh, this is a new subject for you, we there, there are certain places in the New Testament text where the writers of the New Testament quoted from songs that were commonly sung in the congregation of the first century church. And what makes those things obvious is the lyrical layout and the way they're written in the Greek text. But what makes them powerful is the fact that they pre-existed the, the writing of the New Testament. So these letters that are being written are, are, being, are using these songs that were being sung before the letters were written, which means that if you want to get to the confessional belief of the first century church, if you want to get as close as you can to Pentecost and to Calvary, amen, there's no closer record in Scripture of what the first century church taught and believed than these songs. Now, that is incredibly important because all of these songs are very doctrinal. They're all about Jesus. They're all about what he did. And that's why we've entitled it Hymns About Him. And we'll pick up the first passage this morning. Uh, we did an introductory study last week and then getting into our first real text this morning. And this passage is one of the strongest confessional statements of doctrinal belief in the New Testament. It may well be that no other passage of Scripture states as clearly as this passage does what the first century church believed about Jesus. Now, this is a text that will be very familiar to a lot of you. Some of you may not have heard it before, but it's a, it's a familiar text in, in Oneness Pentecostal circles. Uh, I'm going to read it from a slightly different reading. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. I will do that in all of the texts through this series simply because... These are songs, they were written in Greek, they were translated into English, and that translation doesn't always make, it's not something sometimes gets lost in translation. That is amplified when we put it in the King James English, because we're talking now, how many have ever read a, a play written by Shakespeare? And you understand everything Shakespeare wrote? Well, the King James Bible was translated the same time Shakespeare was writing. And so we're going to pull that up into more modern English. We're going to read from the New King James Version simply because we're trying to find a little clarity in these phrases. But the text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And if you have it, stand with me for the reading of the word. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Amen. It's a very familiar passage. It says this. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Amen. Now this morning I have the, the dubious task of walking the fine line between teacher and preacher. And so we're going to pray for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to pray for me that I don't get too bogged down in the teacher side of things. And we let the Spirit flow through this house this morning. But at the same time, I want you to understand what it is we're talking about. Amen. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for the wonderful power of the Word of God. We're asking, Lord, you let it touch our hearts, impact our lives. Let it change us, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus, that we leave this place today to never be the same again. Again, in Jesus' name, would you say amen? 
Amen. You may be seated. So if you let me take a few moments and walk down the, the teacher side of that line, the uh, if I could sound maybe a little bit like your English literature professor or English lit or, or whatever grammar somewhere, some of you don't don't remember an English literature professor, and that's okay, but somewhere you took an English class where they talked about poetry and things like that. And if you give me a few minutes, I want to... I want to talk about the layout poetic form of this before I get into the interpretation of it, okay? There, in the Greek text, there are seven lines here. Now, I know there are seven lines on the screen behind me or in front of me, but, but those seven lines are not exactly laid out the way they are in the Greek text. The Greek text, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, is a line. And that is the introduction to the hymn. It's not a part of the hymn. The song starts with the next line, and the next line is, God was manifest in the flesh. The next line is, justified in the spirit. Then, seen seen by angels. Then, preached among the Gentiles, and believed on in the world, and received up into glory. There are six lines in the song. Seven lines in our text, but six lines in the song. That first line is an introduction to the hymn. It, it wholeheartedly endorses the hymn. It is the commonal confessional statement of the church. Paul says it's something that is without controversy. And then those next six lines are the lyrics of the song. They're the, the, the lyrical portion. Uh, and, and very likely this is a part of a very well-known song. It's a song that was probably sung in, in, in all these different congregations where Paul went because he says this is without controversy. It's something that, that, that everybody knows, that everybody agrees on. This is something that is just readily accepted and understood in the first century church. Now, most of the lyrical quality of the song is lost in English translation. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have meter. It doesn't have flow. It doesn't make sense as a song to us. But in the Greek, they, the scholars tell me that it's quite impressive the way it's written in the Greek. It is, it is a song. It is, does have rhyme. It does have meter. Uh, it does have the different characteristics of a lyrical song. One of the things you have to remember as we go through this study and we're going to look at some diverse passages of Scripture out of the New Testament, is that we're reading poetry that's been translated from one language to another language. I don't know how many of you have ever taken a foreign language. I've taken two. I took French in high school. I took Chinese for several years while my wife and I were traveling as uh, going back and forth to Taiwan to do missions work. And, And so I spent several years learning Chinese. And... What you learn when you're translating a language back and forth from English to Chinese and from Chinese back to English is that uh, what, what may be well-metered and what may rhyme in English may not make sense at all in Chinese if you translate it literally. And the same is true coming back. If you take a song that the Chinese people sing in, in their worship service and translate it back to the English, listen, they put the verbs out of order. They put the, the, the sentence or structure isn't even anything near what you and I would see as normal. And so it doesn't make any sense when it comes back. And so one thing we have to re- remember as we go through these texts is that they're not always going to look like a song. They're not always going to feel like a song, but they are lyrical compositions in the original language. Now, the reason I chose this text to handle first 
is because this is probably the easiest one to see the lyrical composition of it. It's probably the easiest one to see the song in it. There are six lines in this song, and they're easily, arra <coughs> easily arranged into three pairs of contrasting couplets. What I want to do, Brother Dennis, is I'm going to move through these pairs, and then I want to come back to that slide. But if you'll move forward, the first pair of lines in, in the text is about to be on the screen behind me. If you'll switch to the next slide. Right there. No. God was manifest in the flesh is where it starts. If we get that one next. God was manifest in the flesh. I'm putting Dennis on the spot. Everybody say, God bless the sound man. He has no idea what I'm asking for. I just laid it on him a few minutes ago, and he's trying his best to scramble and catch up with me. Amen. That I, I sometimes I pity the guys that have to do that. Amen. Because I don't always give real good explanation. But here we are. Six concise statements. They're in pa pairs. <coughs> I warned you. My voice isn't all there. <coughs> They're in pairs. And so these pairs... Every pair contains a contrast, and the, the contrasts are in the subjects of the pairs. Sorry, six concise statements, each with a similar form. With the exception of the first line, which begins by identifying the subject, God was, with, with the exception of God was... Every statement starts with a verb and is followed by some kind of preposition. In manifest is the verb in the flesh. Justified is the verb in the spirit. The next couplet, manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Seen by angels, seen is the verb, preached among the Gentiles. And then the next one says, believed on in the world. And received up in glory. So six nouns at the end of the lines help us see the intentional pairing and contrasting of the statements. Go back to the first set. Amen. I, I know I sound like an English teacher. I need to be here for just a minute. If you'll bear with me, we'll get to the good stuff. I promise. Amen. I want you to see the song if you can. The, the first set sets up the contrast. The contrast is a, a contrast between flesh and spirit. It's in between that which is heavenly and that which is earthly. And so that, that, that's the contrasting pair in the uh, our contrasting nouns in the first pair. The second pair has angels and Gentiles. Once again, that which is heavenly and that which is earthly. And then the final pair has the world and glory, that which is earthly and that which is heavenly. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but they're laid out in a format where if A represents the earthly and B represents the heavenly, the format is A, B, B, A, A, B. Does that make sense? So that there's, a, there's a, a switch that takes place in the middle pair. And that's significant to the conclusion of the song. It's significant to the main meaning and, and import of the song, and we'll see that as it unfolds. But what we're seeing here is a contrast between earthly and heavenly. Flesh is earthly, spirit is heavenly. Angels are heavenly, Gentiles are earthly. World is earthly, and glory is 
heavenly. So that arrangement helps us see the lyrical quality of the lines. It gives meaning to it. It helps us see the flow that, that goes beyond the words that are written on the page. And so even though in the English we can never take this and sing it, uh, we, we're not going to put it to music. It doesn't rhyme. Uh, it's still we can see somewhat the form that is there. We can see the lyrical composition. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that. Books have been written or chapters of books have been written on this passage and how it is a song and how the song is laid out. But that is not really our purpose this morning. I just want you to see what we're talking about. But the purpose this morning is to consider the meaning behind those six lines of text and how they represent the confessional belief of the first century church because our goal, as always, is to measure our beliefs against the standard of what the first century church believed. We believe that the doctrine of the church today should be the same as it was then. Amen? We don't believe there ought to be a changing of the doctrine. We don't believe there ought to be a, a transition or an evolution of the doctrine. What they believed in the first century about Jesus is what we should believe about Jesus. Amen? We strive to hold the same faith that they held. So that brings us to the song. The song starts this way. Go back to the very first line. And without controversy, great is the mystery of Godliness. Amen. That first line is introductory, but it vouches for the validity of everything else that's going to come. Paul tells us that the lines of this song are without controversy. Now, it's without doubt that he's quoting from what is surely a well-known hymn that was probably used often in worship services. And by doing that, he's reminding his readers that the doctrine that he's teaching is normative for the church. It's the doctrine they hear preached and teach every Sunday. It's the doctrine that they sing when they sing together. And so the phrase without controversy uh, is to give the idea. It's taken from a Greek word that describes a matter on which there is general agreement. Everybody agrees. Agrees. What he's saying is undeniably, beyond any doubt, uh, without controversy, this is the accepted belief of the church. This is the doctrine. Now, what's great about these songs and the reason why I selected this series and these songs to look at on Sunday mornings is because they're all doctrinal. They're all about what the church believed. As a matter of fact, they represent not just this text, but the various texts we're going to look at in the coming weeks represent some of the most doctrinal portions of the New Testament. And Paul wants his readers to know that the truths that are contained there are beyond question. They are without controversy. So then what is this uncontestable truth? What is without controversy? Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, Paul uses the word mystery often to refer to the plan of salvation that, that God conceived before the foundations of the world but was hidden through the ages and is now made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. That which was hidden through the ages is now revealed or in the process of being revealed through Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. But now the word godliness, that comes from a Greek word that denotes piety towards God or what we call holiness. It's a term used not of God, but of men. And so you find in this, this 
Great is the mystery of godliness. You find in this phrase a connection between the mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the song celebrates in every line, and godliness or Christian living or holiness or righteousness. As a matter of fact, while it is not within the purview of this study of a song to back up into the rest of the chapter that preceded it, if you went back and looked at verse 15 that comes before verse 16, you'll find Paul saying to the church that thou oughtest behave thyself. That's the words, exact quote from verse 15. You ought to behave yourself. And the, the, the text that leads into this lyrical song is a text saying you ought to live right. You ought to act godly. You ought to act like the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth, he says. And you ought to act like you're part of the church. You ought to live like you belong to Jesus. The mystery of godliness is the key to, the key to living a godly life lies in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because he did it that we can do it. That's the great mystery of godliness. That God became a man so that I could be set free from sin and I could live righteous. Amen? He lived a perfect life, the only perfect life that will ever be living and the, lived. And these, these, these lines, they celebrate the incarnation. They celebrate that life that he lived. They celebrate the triumph of the Messiah. And Paul declares from the outset, this is the example. This is what we strive for. This is the mystery of God. It's not out of reach that you should live right. It's not out of reach that you should live godly. Jesus Christ is your Example. Amen. So we godliness, this, this idea of Christ likeness, it may be something that we will never fully obtain, but it's something that we are to daily draw nearer to, that we draw nearer to becoming that that place where the scripture says Christ is formed in you. That's the mystery of godliness. Amen. I would live in such a way that Christ would be manifest in my life, that, that he would live inside of me, that I would be able to walk like he walked. Uh, amen. That I would be able to live a life that's pleasing unto God. So we yearn for that day. We yearn for that day that Christ is formed in us. That's the mystery of godliness. God became a man. Flesh and blood. He was carried our transgressions. He carried our sins. He carried our faults and our flaws to an old rugged cross so that you and I could be set free from the bondage of sin and could live godly lives in this present world. Now, some folks try to drive a wedge between belief and behavior, saying that simple belief negates the need for godly living if you believe that it doesn't really matter how you live. But Paul introduces this powerful confession of the first century church and lets us know from the outset that there's a link between the gospel and godliness. That's the mystery of godliness. There's a link between the life of Jesus and the way that we're called to live. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, it will affect your lifestyle. It'll affect the things you say, the places you go, the things you do. You'll walk in godliness. Amen? 
So from that introduction, then, Paul jumps into the words of this song, probably, like I said, a well-known song, song that was sung in the congregations of the first century. And this is the first couplet, the first two lines of the song. It says, God was manifest in the flesh. The, 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 the first and most profound confessional belief of the first century church is that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. That that they believed, that they held to be truth, that which was without controversy, the first and most fundamental belief of the church was that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. That was the truth that is without controversy, that is accepted by all. That is the normative doctrine of the first century church. God, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be, the almighty was manifest. Uh, that, that word manifest means made visible. He was made tangible. He was made, you can't, no man has ever seen God. No man can touch that. The, there is no physical representation because God is a spirit. But the writer of the New Testament said, we beheld the glory of God in the face uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, amen. God was made manifest. Uh, God was made uh, something I could touch, uh, something I can handle, something I can understand, uh, something I can relate to. God was made visible in the flesh. The word for flesh is the word that denotes flesh and blood. It, it denotes the, the real human body. Not that God appeared in some type of hologram and it wasn't really a body, but it was just a spiritual theophany manifestation of God. No, 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 no. He says without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. And that word flesh denotes uh, a real human body, but it even goes further than that. It encompasses everything that makes a human human. God was manifest in the flesh. He was unique among all of creation. He was the God-man. That, that's the statement that boggles the mind. That's, that's the statement that uh, stretches beyond our comprehension, but it is undeniably true. In every way possible, God became a man. Amen? He was at the same time completely human. And completely God. God was on location in the man, Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says it this way. For in him, speaking of Jesus, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of God uh, in him bodily. Uh, God was made manifest in the flesh. John said it this way in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God was made known. God was manifest. He who was infinite distilled himself into the finite. Oh, you got to think about that for a minute. One writer described it. As an iceberg, if you see an iceberg, how many know the story of the Titanic? Amen. That, that portion of an iceberg that you see above the water represents a mass that is sometimes two to three times as big as that below the water. 
you can't see the part that's below the water. But it's the part that's below the water that sinks ships. It's the part that's below the water that destroyed the Titanic. And so in Jesus Christ, we see the visible manifestation of God. But what is behind that is the spiritual reality, the deity, the ancient of days, the one who was and is. And for You can't see that part. Amen. But you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He was made manifest. Amen. So God prepared for himself a body, flesh and blood, and he lived among us. He walked where we walk. The Bible said he was tempted in every way just like we are. But he emerged untouched by sin. He emerged absolutely without sin. He lived the only perfect life that has ever been lived. That's what makes his death so effective. That's what makes the cross so powerful. He was a man, uh, flesh and blood, uh, but he was more than just a man. Uh, he was the perfect man who lived a perfect life, uh, who never once yielded to temptation. Uh, and on the basis of his righteousness, on the basis of his innocent blood, that's how we're declared righteous. That's how we are saved. And that's how we're empowered to live in righteousness or to pursue godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The next line says, justified in the spirit. Now, the contrast was between he was manifest in the flesh, but he was justified in the spirit. As much as the word flesh refers to the full humanity of Jesus, the word spirit refers to the full deity of Jesus, that part you can't see. The ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be the almighty, the everlasting God. Uh, amen. That's the spirit. Uh, and he was manifest in the flesh, but he was justified or vindicated in the spirit. Think about that for a minute. In his flesh, he was condemned to death for crimes he never committed. Evil men accused him. They called him a child of the devil. They said the miracles and the blessings that he did, the miracles he worked, were done by the power of Satan. They accused him of being everything but what he was. And then they nailed him to a cross. The cross was the most vile and torturous of deaths. One passage of scripture says to be hung on a cross is to be forsaken by God. Cursed by God, it says. But after all of that, he was condemned in the flesh, but he was vindicated in the spirit. God raised him from the dead and declared him to be righteous. Where are his accusers now? Where are those that would say that he was unholy and unrighteous? Where are those that would declare that he was the son of the devil? Amen. For God hath raised him up uh, by the power of the Holy Ghost, by the Spirit of God, by the anointing of God. God has raised him up and declared him to be righteous. Now, you got to ask yourself, why does that matter so much that it finds its way into this confessional song of the first century church? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 tells us that we are now 
in Christ Jesus, who is God made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're in Christ Jesus, who is of God made unto us our righteousness. We're in him, and in him, we're in his righteousness. And so his righteousness matters. It matters that he was vindicated in the spirit. It matters that he was justified in the spirit. It matters that what they said about him wasn't true. They nailed him to a cross, but he was innocent when they cried guilty. He deserved life when they gave death. Uh, And it's from his death that we gain life. Amen. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the mystery of godliness. We who are not righteous, we who are not godly, are made righteous and godly in Jesus Christ. Amen? We are empowered by His Spirit to live righteous and godly lives. You don't know how to live right? Get lost in Jesus. You don't know how to live right? Connect your life to His. Amen? Put yourself in his presence and allow him to live inside of you. We are empowered by his spirit to live righteous and godly lives. The the truth of the gospel is contained in these two lines, this couplet. God became a man so that we could become godly or righteous. That's the mystery of godliness. The next couplet starts this way. The first couplet declared the mystery. The second couplet declares how the mystery is revealed. He was seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. Let's deal with the first line first. If you see here, you see heaven and then earth. He, he was seen of angels, that's heavenly. And then he was preached in the Gentiles, that's, that's earthly. But let's look at the heavenly aspect of it. Jesus was seen by angels. Now, there's a lot of speculation you go to reading the commentaries and the different scholars and the people who have written over the ages about this text, there's a lot of speculation about what this means. Is it a reference to the angels who saw Jesus during his earthly life, who were undoubtedly poised on the edge of eternity as he was hanging on an old rugged cross, who would have come to his rescue if only he would have asked. Perhaps that's what it means. Or is it a reference to the angels that were present at the empty tomb who declared that he is not here any longer, but he is risen and he is alive. Surely they saw Jesus in the glory of his resurrection. It could also refer to the angels that beheld him in heaven, uh, that beheld the risen king. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Jesus Christ ascended to to glory think about it heaven is an eternal place and in all of the eons of time there has never been a human being in heaven god is spirit god was never made flesh until the incarnation 
And it wasn't until his death, burial, and resurrection that he ascended into heaven. Could you imagine the angels, what they beheld uh, when he who was the lion of the tribe of Judah emerged as a lamb uh, that had been slain, uh, that had been killed and crucified, but was now risen again in the glory of the power of God. We'll see him on that day when we reach the other side of glory. Amen. No man has ever seen God because God is a spirit. Uh, but we will see him uh, in that human body, in that heavenly body. There will be one sitting on the throne. And that one is Jesus Christ. So maybe it's the angels that beheld the most unique event in all the history of the world when a human being for the very first time entered the gates of heaven, stood in the throne room of heaven, sat upon the throne of God. The first fruits, the scripture said, of the dead. The first of those that are going to do that. Amen. I believe that we are coming behind him one day. He's coming back for a church that has made herself righteous and holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to stand with him in heavenly places. Amen. Perhaps the best answer is all of the above. He was seen of angels. Angels were the heavenly witnesses of his birth. They sang to the shepherds in the field. They were the witnesses to every step of his life, to his death, to his burial, and his resurrection. The angels indeed saw him, but they saw him the way no man ever saw him. Because when he was a baby laying in a manger, they recognized deity there. They knew that some, in some miraculous way, in some ununderstandable manner, in something that's beyond comprehension, God made himself a man. God was manifest in the flesh. The angels saw him for who he really was. Men didn't always see him that way. But the angels saw him as the Almighty. Amen. Then it says preached among the Gentiles. Like the first couplet, this couplet is a contrast. And the contrast here is in between the witnesses. The first witness is heavenly, the angels. The second witness is earthly, the Gentiles. Some, some translations use the word nations there, that, that reading it as a more literal reference to all the nations of the world rather than just the present Gentiles of the first century. It really doesn't matter how you look at it. It's a reference to the people of this world, amen? And, and there's a contrast here between uh, the method of communication. He was seen by angels, but he was preached to the world. He was preached to the Gentiles. Angels could see him in all of his glory. Angels could recognize his deity. Angels knew who he was. And when they saw him, they saw him for who he really was. But that great truth is hidden from men until it's preached to them. The scripture said, how shall they believe? Except they hear. And how shall they hear? Except it be preached unto them. They... Men can't see him with their natural eyes. Men can't grasp the incomprehensible nature of this man, Christ Jesus, God manifest in the flesh. They, they can't even believe it until it is first 
preached to them. This line emphasizes the mission of the church. This is why we're called to live godly. This is why Paul is saying live right. Act like the church because the church is a pillar and the foundation of truth. Uh, Amen. We preach Jesus to the world. Amen. We're called to live godly lives not just for our own benefit before the communication of the great mystery of godliness. Our lives preach and testify of Jesus Christ. One writer remarked that the angels were the least removed from him. They knew him the best, but the Gentiles were the furthest removed from him. They knew him the least, but in this powerful song, in this two-statement couplet, uh, the whole realm of intelligent creation sees Jesus Christ. Amen. The angels saw him. And the Gentiles had him preached unto them. It's the next couplet that we see the transition here. And I'll go back to it in just a minute. But I said it's an A-B-B-A-A-B pattern. And the reason is right here, the transition between the second couplet and the third couplet. It's in the third couplet that we see the conclusion of the matter. This time we start with the earthly. We move towards the heavenly. On earth he was preached about. And now we see the result of that preaching. He was believed on in the world. Men and women who heard the preaching of Jesus Christ were stirred to faith uh, and they believed on him. John chapter 1 and verse 10 says, He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Uh, He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed. Believe on his name. The world didn't see him. The world didn't know him. The world didn't understand him. But when it was preached to them, they were given the power to believe on him. Amen. First John chapter 3 and verse 16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The goal of the gospel is that we would believe. The goal of the gospel is that we would have faith. But you have to understand the faith of Scripture, the faith of the Bible, is not merely a confessional faith or a faith that simply professes to believe in the gospel. It is a faith that is obedient to Jesus Christ. Amen? It was James who said, Faith without works is dead. Amen? There's no substance to it. Until you put faith into action until you pair faith with obedience it's not faith at all so you have to believe the gospel and you have to obey the gospel so the question is what is the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ amen and so Acts chapter 2 contains the results of preaching the gospel Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost and they were pricked in their hearts the conviction of God settled on them and they asked him they said men and brethren what shall we do the question was uh, amen what do I need to do to be saved uh, how do I respond to this preaching uh, Peter preached Jesus. And and when they heard the preaching of Jesus, they were stirred in their hearts and they said, what do we need to do to be saved? And Peter said to them in Acts chapter 2, 
in verse 38 that they needed to repent of their sins. That repentance identifies you with the death of Jesus Christ. Repentance is a type of death. It's a way of dying out to the old man and to the flesh and putting that former life behind you. It is in repentance that you experience the death uh, that Jesus Christ experienced. And then Peter went on to say that we're buried. We need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul said we are buried with him in baptism. And baptism is a, a, a way of identifying with the burial of of Jesus Christ. Peter said, repent uh, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for this promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Amen. That's what Peter preached as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, uh, amen, that we have to believe on him. And if we're going to believe on him, then we're obedient to him. Amen. If we're going to believe in the gospel, then we're going to experience that gospel for ourselves. Amen. The scripture says that that same spirit which was in Jesus dwells in you on that final day, on that last day, when the trump of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise first, we which are alive and remain, uh, that same spirit uh, will quicken your mortal bodies. Uh, amen. That's what's going to get you out of this world one of these days to meet him in heaven. Amen. So the earthly conclusion of the matter is that men heard the gospel preached, and they believed in Jesus, they responded to the gospel in obedience, and they were saved. But that's not the end of the story. Our salvation enables us to walk in godliness, but we're not living for this world. We're not living for anything on this side. of Our treasures are not in this earth. We live with heaven in view. The goal is to reach the other side. The goal is to find our way to glory one of these days. So the final couplet of the song uh, concludes by once again declaring the spiritual reality. He's believed on in the world, and Jesus Christ was received up in glory. Amen. He was caught up into the heavens. They stood there on that mountain outside of Jerusalem on that last day, uh, and they watched him as he was caught up into the heavens, received into glory. But let me tell you what his parting words were. In John chapter 14 and verse 3, it says, And I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may ye be also. Amen. That's the conclusion of the song. That's the hope of our lives. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles believed on in the world and received up into glory that we may one glorious day join him where he is. Amen. Amen. That's the key to the conclusion. The, the key to the conclusion lies in the link between the second and third couplet. Brother Dennis is going to put up the last line of the last couplet and the first line of the final couplet. These are the two that deal with earthly reality preached among the Gentiles. 
believed on in the world. We had to respond to the preaching of the word. We had to respond to the, the word of God in faith and obedience to that word. That's how we're saved. That's how we make that transition to we're going to be caught up together with him one of these days. We're going we're gonna to hit the end of the song when we get through this part of the song. Amen. We have to hear the preaching of the word. We have to believe on that word. And we have to allow that word to touch our hearts and to change our lives. One of these days, every man, woman, and child will be held accountable for what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Every life will be measured by that simple and direct answer to the question, what do we need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I believe he's still calling. Amen. Would you stand with me? So what you have this morning, and I understand it's possibly more lecture and less preaching. I, 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 don't, I try to find the right mix in all of that. But I want you to walk away knowing that not just that you understand what you've heard, but that you understand the greater truth that lies behind it. God was manifest in the flesh. That was the single seminal foundation upon which everything else the first century church believed. God was made flesh so that we could be set free from our sins. That's the mystery of godliness. God became a man so that men could become godly. Not that men would become gods, but that men would become godly. That's the mystery of godliness. He's made a way where there was no way. There was a gulf that separated man from God. There was this huge chasm created by sin and rebellion that forever alienated us from the presence of God. There was no way for a man to cross the bridge from humanity to godliness, from flesh and earthliness to godliness. But the cross made a bridge so that you and I could cross that great divide so that we could stand in the presence of God and lift up holy hands, not because of anything I've done, but because of the blood that covers them. God was made flesh so that we could be set free from our sins, so that we could live a life that is holy, righteous, godly, pleasing unto the Lord. Amen. That's the message that is preached. And that's the message that must be believed. There is a better way. There is a better life. There is a better relationship with him. There's a closer walk with God. And I know I, under the sound of my voice, I, I'm preaching mostly to folks who have been in the church all your life. And, and all of you know the things I'm talking about. But I'm telling you, there's a closer walk with God than where you are right now. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've walked with God. There's nobody under the sound of my voice that is not true this morning. There's a place that you can stand closer to God than where you are right now. You can know him better than you know him right now. You can can grow in your relationship with him. There is a better way. There is a better life. Uh, and it was revealed to us in the life and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. He made it possible that we may be born again. That's new life. 
That's a new birth. Everything starts over. Old things pass away. All things become new. It starts with hearing the preached word of God and responding in faith. It's saying, Lord, here I am. I bring you my life. I bring you my heart. I bring you my home. I bring you my family. I bring you all of my past mistakes and faults and failures. All of the things that I'm ashamed of, God, I bring them to you. Can I tell you something? God's not ashamed of you this morning. God's not ashamed of your past. He's not ashamed of your faults and your failures. He's not ashamed of the things that you bring into his presence. He's ready, stands ready and willing to cover them in the precious blood of Jesus Christ that they'll never be remembered again. First, you have to believe. First, you have to respond. First, you have to answer the preaching of the word with an act of faith. I'm asking right now in the name of Jesus Christ that you'd step out of your pew, that you'd come and find a place in an altar for a few moments, that you'd turn your heart towards heaven and tell him, Lord, I believe. I believe there's a better way. I believe there's a better life. I believe there's a new beginning. I believe that things don't have to always be the way they've always been. I believe I can change. I believe the Spirit of God makes a difference. Would you come and find a place in this altar this morning? If you've never repented of your sins, would you repent of your sins? If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we can put you down in the water in the name of Jesus Christ. If you've never received the gift of the Holy Ghost, uh, it's real. uh, And he's still working and moving and pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Uh, I'm asking you on a Sunday morning, if you just turn your heart towards heaven and let the Holy Ghost have its way in your life. uh, In Jesus' name.